Let's pray together. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you're a God who has spoken and not remained silent. And Father, we pray today that you would help me speak clearly, that you'd uh, help me speak uh, concisely and well, that we might be able to hear what you want to say to us. And Lord God, as a result of your Spirit working in us and hearing what you say, that we would obey what you want us to do. And Father, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, like Andrew was saying, the outline and the passage that, you've, uh, that we're dealing with today is actually in the outline uh, that you've been given at the door, as well as your Easter. Um, a while back, a 70-year-old man by the name of Bill Moylan uh, woke up on a bright sunny morning and decided that because it was such a beautiful day, he decided to take his wife for a drive to Gosford. Uh, Bill and his wife actually live in Hornsby, and so they jumped in the car and headed north on the F3. Now, unfortunately, things actually took a turn for the worse when Bill took a wrong turn at the turn-off to the S3. Uh, they started driving north to Gosford, all right, but they were driving in the southbound lane. Uh, what's more is that poor old Bill couldn't understand what the problem was with all the other drivers. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of other cars all going in the wrong direction to him. He tried flashing his lights, uh, but they still wouldn't turn around. Twice the police tried to flag Bill down, but he sailed blissfully past them. Uh, He wasn't speeding, Uh, he was using his blinkers the right way and whenever he changed lanes, he used his blinkers, he might think. And the police were obviously trying to uh, attract someone else's attention. Now, this actually went on for 50 kilometres until the police finally stopped Bill by stopping all traffic and barricading the entire freeway at the Gosford interchange. Uh, Bill still couldn't understand though what all the fuss was about. Uh, I mean, everyone else was going the wrong way, the police weren't convinced however. And so it was that Bill never actually got to Gosford. And Bill now doesn't have a driver's license either, and I think we're all pretty glad about that. Uh, the moral of this true story is that no matter what way you travel, if you're travelling in the wrong direction, you'll end up in trouble. See, it doesn't matter how blissfully ignorant you are of your mistake uh, that you might be, it doesn't matter if you're doing all the right things along the way. At the end of the day, if you're heading in the ro- wrong direction, uh, you will get into a lot of trouble. Now, if that's true in terms of how you get to Gosford, how much more is it in the case of how you're going to stand firm to the end and arriving in heaven? Uh, can you imagine the tragedy of living your whole life a certain way, doing all the right things, using the blinkers properly, not speeding, doing all the right things, going to church, reading your Bible, whatever religious thing that you might think is important to you, thinking you're firm on the way to heaven, but at the end of your life you discover that you weren't. And the gates of heaven are barricaded off to you because all the time you're actually heading the wrong direction. That would be a tragedy indeed. In the passage of the Bible that we're looking at today, uh, the writer, the Apostle Paul, actually doesn't want anyone in the Philippian church to go through that sort of tragedy, to go the wrong way. But for now, because we're looking at the book of Philippians and we've been looking at Philippians for the last few weeks, it might be helpful for us to remember the story behind this letter and the argument so far, so that we actually see the passage in its original context to actually understand what it's trying to say. Now, remember the story behind the letter is that the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul had actually planted in a church in this town in northern Greece, uh, this city called Philippi, he planted it by preaching the gospel. And, and while he was there, he was arrested, beaten up, thrown to jail, and after a short earthquake, he was actually released. Uh, he, he left there and continued preaching. 
But the Christians in Philippi actually continued to send support to him. They prayed for him, they sent him money, they, they, they repeatedly uh, gave aid to him, support to him, and even sent one of their own members to him. Uh, they're actually true partners of the Gospel, in the ministry of the Gospel. But all the time, when they were doing this for Paul, they themselves continued to be persecuted back home in Philippi. They were going through suffering. At the time of writing, Paul was actually thrown back into prison, uh, not in Philippi this time, possibly another place facing execution. But the Philippians still sent aid, and this time a bloke called Epaphroditus. Uh, Epaphroditus had been sent. And though, at that time, the Philippians were still facing persecution. Now, it's in this partnership and suffering, it's in this context that Paul actually gave a command that we saw last week. I've got it here in the overhead. Uh, and that's what Paul wanted the Philippians, wanted of his Philippine partners last week. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's command. Then where I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know you stand firm in the one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. This is a great topic sentence, I think, of the book of Philippians. Um, that you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whether I'm released and come to you, or whether I, I never get to see you, or whether I'm executed, this is what you should do in the context of what you find yourselves in the future. And what does it mean to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel? We've been saying over the last few weeks, it's here in that sentence, in the next part of that sentence. A manner that, that is worthy of the gospel is to stand firm and not be afraid. It's to be united in the one spirit, as one person, as you contend for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how are they to, to be united? Well, last week we saw it. Uh, we saw it in chapter 2. It argues that the way to unity is true humility. The way to unity, to standing firm in one spirit as one person, the way to unity is by humility. The humility of Jesus Christ as a true example. The humility that puts the other person's concerns ahead of your own. It's when each person looks to the other person uh, uh, rather than their own interests that will stand. When you look to your own interests, you'll be divided. When you look to the other person's interests, that's humility and that's how we'll be united. But the question that we're still going to ask today is, so how are we to be humble? That's a great flow of ideas there. What actually enables us, what actually frees ourselves so that we can consider other people's interests better than our own, more important than ours? What's the secret to humility? How do we do it? Well, I think chapter 3 that you've got in front of you uh, of the book of Philippians actually answers that question. And I think in answering that question, Paul actually prevents us from having the tragedy of tragi- travelling in the wrong direction, like poor old Bill Moylan living the false life, which is really a huge loss. See, the conclusion of chapter 3, you actually see it beginning in chapter 4, which is on the right-hand column, right down the bottom, that big letter 4, uh, big number 4, and you'll see the conclusion of that chapter there. Therefore, that great word, which actually summarises all of chapter 3. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. The chapter is going to be about standing firm once again, like we saw back last week. And so it's in this chapter that Paul offers himself as an example of how to stand firm, how to actually take on that humility of Christ Jesus. Have a look at the the sentence that starts with the, the number 17, verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Chapter 3 is going to be about the example of Paul. He'd given them a pattern. 
He'd modeled what it is to be a Christian. And he wants them to follow his example. Follow my example, he says. He puts himself forward as an example of the gospel itself. How do you stand firm? United in the face of opposition. Taking on Christ's humility. How do you do that? Well, chapter 3 is the answer to it. Paul's account. Because here's a man who's unafraid to die. Here's a man who's discovered true life. Here's a man who knows a life that even death cannot destroy. A life that's great gain, a great profit. Now, to understand true life, you actually got to understand false life. And Paul used to live a false life. And there are others who still live a false life. That's the wrong direction to go. And Philippians, while it's generally a warm, happy epistle, he's pleased with the church, there is joy in his crown, as it says there back in chapter 4, verse 1. My brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. It's happy. It's an enormous description. And chapter 3 starts off in a very friendly way. Finally, my brothers and sisters, my close brethren, rejoice in the Lord. But then verse 2 actually goes on and says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Sounds like axe murderers or something, or something from the exiles. Um, uh, what is this? Good grace. You see, as much as it's a happy letter, uh, there's a dark side to it as well. For the Philippians are living under the threat of false life, looming threateningly over them. The dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, as Paul puts it. Not, not dogs eating humans or something like that, but mutilating the flesh by circumcision. And we know that because notice the contrast that he actually gives in verse 3. We are the circumcision. Not those people who insist that you, you've got to mutilate the flesh, that you, you insist on you being circumcised. That's not what it is. That's not what he's talking about. We are the true circumcision. Well, who are those mutilators? Who are the enemies of the cross, as they refer to in verse 18? And we're going to spend a little bit of time on them, and the way that we're going to find out about them is the contrast that actually Paul's going to do. Paul describes them in contrast with the true people of God in verse 3. Look who the true, true people of God are. Verse 3, it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. For that is what they do. The mutilators, they're the ones who put confidence in the flesh. Now, if anybody has reasons for confidence in the flesh, says Paul in verse 4 and 5, I've got more reasons for confidence in the flesh. You want to have a competition about confidence in the flesh? Okay, bring it on. I can do more. I've got more confidence than you have because I've got better flesh than you. That's what Paul is saying. And so what's he talking about here? Because he illustrates it in himself. The reason for the confidence that he has in verse 5. I have more, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, if you want to boast, says Paul, my pedigree is better than yours. You won't get a better pedigree than what you have here. Everything that you could think of, that you could think of being required for being one of God's people, I've got it. I've got it from the religious initiation by my circumcision. I've got it from my own background. I'm a Hebrew speaker. I wasn't just raised for second class Jew or something like that. I was raised a Hebrew. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. In my being, in my very core, I'm a Hebrew. 
I came from the people of Israel. But not just from the people of Israel, but from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, the kind of that very important tribe which the first king of Israel came from. The tribe that stuck with Judah and was faithful right to the end. The royal line. I came from Benjamin. And as far as the law of Israel was concerned, I came from the most strict legal part, the Pharisees. And as far as that goes, I was so zealous. I was zealous beyond everybody. I was so zealous I went persecuting Christians. That's how zealous I was. Under the law, I was faultless. Now that is very impressive pedigree. Especially when you realise that the Jew were God's chosen people. If God chose a Jew, then I've got to be in. I'm as Jewish as they get. I'm the best of the best. You can't any, get any more kosher than this. This is the ultimate statement in kosherism, if there's ever such a word. This is Paul. This is what he's done about. Now, in the 21st century, this is a very 1st century Jewish view. In the 21st century, you could say the same thing in a whole range of different things. Uh, you can have pride in your flesh as an Anglican, as a Roman Catholic, or, or a Baptist, or Presbyterian, or Muslim, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or, or anything that you want to put yourself in, into that category. It just means having pride in your heritage. That self-assurance of your own culture, that self-worth and self-evaluation on the basis of who you are, where you come from, what you've done, that confidence in yourself before God in the things that you have. Let me put it in a Christian church context. It's sort of like saying, I was baptised by the dean of the Anglican Cathedral. In my church, in my, church my, my parents played the organ and my father ran, ran the, the youth groups. In my training, I did the best training that you could ever get, the Howard Guinness Project at Sydney University. <laughs> in, in, in all the activities, I, I go to every single Katoomba Youth Conference that there's ever been. See, there's a person who has pride, confidence in his own flesh, in who he was, where he came from, what he has done. Now, if anyone's impressive, says Paul, I'm more. Doesn't matter what your background is, you could do the same thing with your background, couldn't you? You could say that you've established your credentials from your own background. In fact, you don't even need to be religious to talk about this sort of language. You can have an irreligious confidence in your flesh. I'm a child of a migrant, made good, educated in one of the most prestigious private schools in Sydney. Live on the North Shore of Sydney. Not even the North Shore, the Northern Beaches, God's own country. With all my sporting achievements, with my academic record, I was a Queen Scout, got the Gold Duke Edinburgh Award, Bronze Star in Life Saving, a prefect, honours from Sydney University, worked for one of the best professorial units in, in surgical units in Australia as a senior resident. You, you're the kind of person, he says, who's impressed by your own CV, the person who believes that their own curriculum vitae, as a person who has confidence in their flesh. It sounds like true life. It sounds like real life. It sounds like profitable life. Because you've got it all. If anyone's got it, he's got it all. But in fact, as we'll go on to see, it actually is false life. I guess the question I've got to ask here, right here, and openly and honestly, is where's your self-esteem? Where's your self-identity? Where would you be if I were to ask you to describe yourself? You know, if you went to a new group of people and they said, well, say three things about yourself. What are the three things that you would say about yourself that would make you an acceptable person in that group? An acceptable person to the rest of that group? Could you think of three things? 
Or is yours really a, self, a, a low self-esteem? Which really is pride in reverse. Is it your family? Is it your culture? Is it because you come from a certain country or that you're actually from the country? Or is it because you come from the nicer parts of town? Is it your achievements? Is it how you perceive yourself as worthwhile and significant because you did this and you've done that? Is that what makes you worthwhile? Or is it your morality? You're the kind of person that sets certain standards that you live up to. Is it your good looks? You know, when you go to parties, you say, you know, lots of people think I look like this famous movie star or something. Who's supposed to look fantastic? Is it your youth? Is it your athleticism? Do you like to you see yourself as really good at sport? Is it? What is it? And Paul is going to say, that's all false life, friends. That's going to be lost. As long as you think of your life in terms of confidence in yourself, you haven't understood what life that is true yet. So let's look at the true life in Paul. The true life that lets him take on Christ's humility so that he can actually stand united, united in the face of persecution, to live a life worthy of the gospel. Because Paul tells us about confidence in the flesh as a backdrop to true life. He gives us a backdrop of false life so that you can actually see the true life even more clearly. So that you can actually see what it is to glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 there. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I just count everything as so much rubbish to be thrown off, to be thrown away, to be discarded. It's of no value. All those things just don't matter. They're garbage. They're refuge. They're done, I think, in the original. How has he come to this discovery? How has Paul actually come to this revolutionary turning around discovery? Of course, one day, Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was on the road to Damascus to go and kill some Christians. He was zealous in persecuting the church. And on the way there, he met Christ. Look, it's fairly embarrassing, I think, when you go and kill Christians and you meet Christ. Especially when you think he's dead. Especially when you think he's not Christ at all, a phony Christ. To come face to face with the living Christ, dead and risen again. When you think that Christ was a fraud, when Jesus was a fraud and phony, Paul realised that his whole life was wrong and that everything he took pride in really doesn't matter. Suddenly he saw on that road to Damascus the risen Jesus and everything of which he would boast became useless, even less than useless. He saw that righteousness, real, true, worthwhile righteousness, doesn't come from the law, doesn't come from achievements, doesn't come from merit, it comes from God. For it doesn't matter what CV you have about yourself, about myself. What matters is what God says about me. That's what matters. I might be happy with who I am, but fully for that. What God says about you is what's important. And so it's the righteousness that comes from Christ, who died on his behalf and rose again. But Jesus didn't die as a failure. He died as a sacrifice of sin. That's what Good Friday is about this Friday. That's why the death of an innocent man can actually be good. 
And he rose again a victor. That's what Easter Sunday is about. It's not about Easter eggs. Sorry for giving those out, but I love them. It's not a fertility cult or festival. It's not about eggs. The Chinese call it the Resurrection Festival. That's what it's about. It's about Jesus who rose again. And so, meeting Jesus, the resurrected one, Paul had to suddenly review his whole view about who Jesus was, the one who was crucified. For if Jesus had risen from the dead, he wasn't a failure. He wasn't a reject. God vindicated him. And why did God vindicate the one whom he cursed? Why did God raise up the one that he killed? Because he died as a sacrifice. Not for his own sins, but for our sins, for Paul's sins. For in particular, what Jesus has done for us is to die in our place on the cross. That's the big thing that we rely on Jesus for. He died in our place. He took our punishment. And not only did he die, he rose again to be the king. The king of the universe declared the victor. Jesus took the anger on himself but rose again victorious. Uh, A few weeks ago in the surgery that I worked in, uh, I was flicking through an old National Geographic uh, article and had this story. Evidently, after some forest fires in the Yellowstone National Park, uh, some forest rangers were trekking up a mountain assessing the fire damage. And one ranger found a bird literally petrified in ashes literally petrified in ashes, perched like a grotesque little statue at the base of a, a huge tree. Well, somewhat sickened by the sight, uh, the ranger actually knocked the bird, dead bird over with a stick. However, when he struck it, uh, uh, and, and that little statue fell over, three little chicks actually scurried out from un- underneath the dead mother's wing. You see, the loving mother, evidently aware of the impending danger, uh, she had carried her offspring to the base of the tree, and gathered them under her wings. She could have flown away to safety, but she refused to abandon her chicks. And even when the blaze arrived, the heat that scorched her little body, the mother remained steadfast. Now, it's not a perfect illustration, but in a way, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He took the punishment that was due for us. That little bird did it for her own children, her own chicks. Jesus did it for those who ignored him, those who were enemies of him, those who hated him or ignored him, enemies of God. See, being a Christian is about having a righteousness not of ourselves, but a righteousness that is by having faith in Christ, in what he's done for us, the righteousness that comes from God. Now he puts his confidence not in his flesh, but in Christ in Christ Jesus, no longer self-centred, but Christ-centred. And now he, what he wants to know in verse 10 is Christ himself. What he wants to know is the power of Christ's resurrection. What he wants to know is the fellowship of Christ's suffering. What he wants to know and experience for himself is dying for others like Christ did. Not that he's arrived and he's complete, not that. He's still going, but he started in the right direction. Previously he was going the wrong direction, killing Christians in the back Damascus. Now he's going right in the right direction, preaching Christ to the rest of the world from Damascus. Are you sure of standing firm? Because that's what this section is about, standing firm to the end. Are you absolutely confident that you're going the right direction? From what Paul is saying here, you can put your confidence in two things. 
You can put your trust in a righteousness of your own, your own person, your own achievements. Or you can put your confidence in Jesus, in what he's done. One is for profit, one is for loss, if you put it in Paul's accounting language. It's a simple choice. You can invest in me for Priority Limited, or you can invest in Jesus for Priority Limited. And he's saying to the Philippians, invest in Jesus. The other investment will get you a loss. You'll get burnt. This will get you a gain. Put your trust in him, have faith in him. It's the only way to stand firm. If you have confidence in your flesh, then you will never be sure that you will stand firm. Because you'll never be sure that you're righteous at the end of the day. You'll never be sure that you're righteous enough. Because after all, didn't you say that? Didn't you do this? Didn't you think that? What about the time you were... And even if you are righteous, and even if you're righteous enough, how do you know that tomorrow, the next day, or the next day, or, 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 or the year after, the year after that, you've got no confidence that you'll stand for. But when your confidence in this Christ, when you glory in Christ, then you know that he has died for you and you know that God has declared you as righteous already. And that he who began a good work will carry on to completion. We can have confidence in that. Well friends, how are you going to respond to God's word today? Uh, this week is an opportunity week. Every week we, we proclaim the gospel about who Jesus is, he's the Lord of the universe. This is an opportunity this week to respond to the gospel message. And the question we need to ask is, where is your confidence? Is your confidence in yourself? Or do you glory in Christ? Is your confidence in the flesh? Or is your confidence in God's righteousness, in what he's done for you? Is your assurance to be found in him, or is it in yourself? The achievements, who you are. That Paul actually at the end of the day counts as rubbish, it's done. It's a question really of have you been born again? That's really what it is. Have you come to that profitable true life where you can announce that the old, that big loss, it's gone, it's dead, it's done away with. It's the start of a dramatic turnaround. Not often as dramatic as Paul on the road to Damascus. Some of us, it takes six months, it takes years. But it is a dramatic turnaround. For I no longer live for myself, but for Christ. Is it you? Do you want to turn from yourself to Jesus? In a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. I've got it up here. In a moment we're going to say a prayer. Um, if you know that you're going the wrong way, if you want to turn around, if you want to turn around, well, thank you. It's the sort of prayer that you need to pray. Yay. <laughs> uh, it's got three paragraphs. Uh, three paragraphs that actually says, sorry, thank you, and please. Sorry that you've been living the false life, that you've been going the wrong way. Thank you for what Jesus has done, that we can have his righteousness, that we can live the true life. And please, a couple of things. It asks God for a couple of things. 
and ask God that he'll help you to change it. But even more than that, to live as Jesus as King, as the Lord of the universe. Not that he's just a saviour, but he's your new King as well. But before we do that, I want to bring it back to the context of Philippians. Because that's important as well. Because what does it say to those people who are Christians? The Philippians were the people of God. What's the news for those of us who are Christians? You see, because Christianity is all about relying on Jesus and his death for us, rather than anything we do, it means that they can be humble. They've got nothing to boast about. And because they can be humble, and, and, and boast not in themselves, but Jesus and the cross, they actually can be united. And so they can stand firm without fear, and so live lives worthy of the gospel. Which is why the Apostle Paul, first words in the section were, in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Hey, live a life worthy of the gospel. How do you do that? Well, by being united. How are you united? By being humble. And you want to be humble? Well, understand that you've got nothing to boast, but that you can boast in Christ. Do you hear that? Rejoice in the Lord. Not rejoice in your own achievements, not rejoice in your own respectability. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in what He's done for us. That's how we'll stand for. Rejoice. Rejoice that there's no set lifestyle that you have to keep in order to merit being saved or something. And Paul wants the Philippians to breathe in that freedom. The freedom we enjoy with Christ is stunning. Rejoice in that. I heard an interview uh, a while ago now uh, of one of the actors in my favourite TV series, VR actually, uh, and, and he was talking about uh, a cornea transplant that he had in his eye and how grateful he was to the boy who actually donated it. He said, every day I wake up, he said, every day I wake up I say a prayer for this kid who gave me his eye. Every day. Friends, how much more ought we to rejoice every day we wake up? We don't just have improved eyesight. Christians have eternal life. Christians can stand firm to the end. And the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Philippians, he says, rejoice in that. Rejoice in the true life that we don't deserve. Rejoice in the true life that we could never earn. Yet for God's grace, for those who glory in Christ Jesus, we've obtained the true life, life everlasting. No wonder his first words to us today were, Rejoice in the Lord. And Paul also says in verse 1, It's no trouble for me to write these things to you again. See all this stuff. He's probably said it to the Philippians over and over again. He's probably said it to them already when he was staying with them. But he writes it again and he'll gladly keep telling them the same thing over and over again because it's so fundamental to being what a Christian is. And yet it seems to be one of the most misunderstood things about being a Christian. For example, listen to how one bloke described being a Christian. Uh, this guy was in the paper uh, a few years ago. He's from Western Australia. And he's found out that he's actually become uh, an English Earl. Uh, he was pretty excited about this discovery and he says, well, certainly, I'm proud of it. It's an old and honourable title. But I think I live up to it. I was brought up pretty strictly by my grandfather. He told me never to do anything that you'd be ashamed of and treat others as you'd like to be treated and you'll be a good Christian as any other man. In my life, I've done what I could, what I thought was best, and you can't do more than that. Do you hear that? Do your best. Never do anything you'd be ashamed of. Treat others how you want to be treated, and you'll be a good Christian as any man. No mention of Jesus whatsoever. 
Hey, look, the great thing. Don't doubt that. The great thing. And that's what a lot of people think, I think. A lot of people think that Christianity is about being good and keeping the golden rule. And Paul is very clear today. It's not about you and what you do. They're important things. But it flows out of what Jesus has done. It's not about the doing. It's about the done. And therefore the only way to stand firm on to the end is by faith in Jesus. It's righteousness by faith. And any other way, it's the wrong way. It's just the wrong way. Do you hear that? Have you come to terms with it? Do you understand this crucial aspect of what Christianity is all about? Because I hate you to be like poor old Bill Moylan, cruising on the freeway, thinking that he's doing all the right things, technically correct, actually heading in a completely wrong direction. Please don't think that the Christian life is doing all the right things, trying to merit your way to heaven or something. It's as foolish as driving in the southbound lane north to, to Gosford and thinking you're okay because you always put your indicators on when you change lanes. Are you travelling in the wrong direction? Do you need to turn around? And if you'd like to turn around, then pray this prayer with me. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm sorry that I have lived the false life, trusting in myself and what I have done. I'm guilty of running life, ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life, true life. Please forgive me and change me that I might live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Friends, if that's the first time you prayed the prayer, it's a great way of turning around. That's beautiful. And you can be sure that God has heard your prayer and it will help you to keep on turning around, keep on going on in the new direction.